Now let's, um, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the constancy of your control over the course of history, that things happen as you plan and determine them to happen, and that history is moving inexorably toward the end and the second coming of our Lord Jesus and the renewal of all things that will follow it. And we pray tonight as we um, examine together uh, what Scripture has to say uh, about aspects of the future. We pray for wisdom and discernment and uh, ask that in everything uh, the name of our Lord Jesus would be honored and glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, we, we are, I forget whether we're in week three or four, three, I think, of uh, center point for this spring, and uh, the topic uh, is eschatology and cosmic eschatology. And uh, tonight we're looking at the signs of the times. Uh, we're going to run past a couple of issues that we um, kind of referred to last week when we were referring to a different aspect of it, and we were trying last week to answer the question, uh, is the second coming datable? Uh, and part of the answer of that was, no, not in specific terms, but in general terms, if there are events that must happen before the second coming, it, it does answer the question as to whether the second coming is imminent or not, meaning at any moment. Uh, and I, for one, do not believe that the Scriptures teach an any-moment coming of Jesus because there are aspects of prophecy that need to be fulfilled before Jesus comes again. Uh, that question is complicated by a branch, um, a very large branch of Christendom uh, given over to what, what we sometimes refer to as a dispensational view, uh, the, the view of the Schofield uh, Study Bible or, or the Ryrie Study Bible, something like that, Dallas uh, Theological Seminary, uh, that divides the uh, second coming into two aspects, uh, a coming for the saints, which involves a rapture, sometimes referred to as a secret rapture, uh, and then they're whisked away for seven years, uh, and then a coming with uh, the saints, um, and so on. But that first part of it, that coming for the saints, Jesus doesn't come all the way down to the earth, he comes on the clouds. That aspect of it in dispensationalism is, is any moment, uh, so within the next five seconds as a possibility. Now, I don't believe that Scripture actually teaches that. Now, let's look at uh, signs of the times, and uh, first of all, uh, some mistaken views about the signs of the times. Um, first of all, the view that suggests that the signs are exclusively um, uh, grouped uh, 
around the constellation of events that, that involved the second coming, so that if you were to be able to identify one of these signs, then the second coming must be soon. Uh, and, and all of us have met uh, sweet folk, dear folk, godly folk um, who love their Bibles and believe in the second coming uh, that, that see things like, like wars or rumors or earthquakes or, or just bad times. So the second coming must, must therefore be soon in their thinking. We are in the end times. We are in the last days would, would be their conclusion. And that is... Um, uh, there are lots of things sort of problematic with that view, not least the fact that we've been in the last days since Pentecost. Peter on the day of Pentecost spoke of, of in these last days, uh, quoting from uh, the prophet uh, Joel. Um, but also it's uh, a failure to understand that these signs of the times are actually signs that occupy the entirety of the period from uh, the resurrection ascension of Jesus to the second coming. So they are signs of the last days, but the last days themselves occupy the entire period between the two advents uh, of, of Jesus. A second mistaken view is that these signs enable us to predict the date of the second coming by uh, inferring, as I've just said, that their presence implies that Jesus' return is imminent, and that aspect we looked at last week. And thirdly, that the signs are always abnormal and catastrophic and spectacular, things like wars and earthquakes and the Antichrist and the man of lawlessness and the battle of Armageddon and, and, and so on. Now, Jesus says in Luke 17... Um, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Uh, And that, at the very least, that suggests that the signs uh, point to um, ordinary events that mark this period of history as well as certain catastrophic um, events. Now, let's uh, drop down to number two there, identifying the signs. Um, uh, Signs, first of all, evidencing the triumph of God's redemptive purposes. And and there are two of them that I want us to consider. We looked at this briefly last week, and now I want to expand on it a little more. Uh, The preaching of the gospel to all the nations as as a sign of, um, as an eschatological sign, as a sign of the second coming, as a sign of where history is is going. And Scripture seems to posit the view that the gospel is to be preached to all the nations. Now, this is in fact an expectation that's embedded in, deep within the Old Testament. It's embedded within the Abrahamic covenant as that covenant is, is foreshadowed in Genesis 12 and then affirmed in Genesis 15 and 17. But in Genesis 12, it contains uh, that promise, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all 
the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. An indication that there is an aspect of the Abrahamic covenant that will involve the nations of the world, uh, all the families of the world. Um, And then uh, in Genesis 17, uh, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Again in verse 5, I've made you a father of a multitude of uh, nations. Um, Just a few Psalms uh, mentioning the rule of God over the nations, and and there's a a whole bunch of Psalms that do that, but let me pick out Psalm 72 and verse 19. Uh, Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory Uh, Amen and Amen. Uh, And therefore, within the Old Testament, there is um, uh, an anticipation of um, that that the purposes, the redemptive purposes of God will, in some way or another, affect the nations of the world, the peoples of the world. Uh, And then, of course, in the Joel prophecy, uh, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Uh, specifically at Pentecost, when Peter cites this prophecy of Joel, chapter 2, indicating that the last days have begun, um, the purposes of the gospel now move out from Jerusalem and the Jews and toward the Gentile nations of uh, the world. So, So, that expectation of the preaching of the gospel to all nations is actually embedded within Uh, Old Testament eschatological expectation. And then specifically in the New Testament, you have the Great Commission in Matthew 28, based as I think that is in part on the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. There is at least a reflection in that Great Commission of the worldwide aspect of the gospel and of God's redemptive purposes. Uh, But specifically in the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13.10, and as I said, I think last week, we are going to spend an evening looking at the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, Luke 21, and Matthew 24. Um, And and we will look at that very important um, chapter, uh, the three chapters in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and and Luke. Uh, but let's take the Mark version of it in Mark 13.10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And, and we looked at Piper's interpretation of that last week, uh, and we'll move on from, from that tonight. Um, Acts, Acts 2.39 at Pentecost, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the nations, you and your family, but also the nations uh, of the world. Uh, The mystery of the gospel includes God's purposes uh, to save and elect people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, uh, part of uh, Paul's uh, introduction to chapter 1 of Ephesians. So that's, uh, that's one aspect of 
that's one sign of the times the gospel is being preached to all nations, and uh, the application of that uh, is a very simple one. It is part of our mandate as a church, as a covenant community, to have a worldwide focus uh, in terms of, of um, our Christian life, which is one of the reasons why at, at our prayer meeting every Wednesday evening uh, we pray for missionaries uh, in various parts of the world, and those missionaries in God's providence that we have a special link with. But it's in part a fulfillment of um, the gospel must be preached in all the nations. A second aspect uh, of the the general thought, um, signs evidencing the triumph of God's redemptive purposes, we need to take up this uh, verse in Romans 11.26, Uh, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, um, the problem was posed by Paul, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Um, Romans 8, of course, had ended with that extraordinary peroration that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, not life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, and so on. Um, And then in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul poses a problem in Romans 9, uh, right at the beginning of Romans 9, that the promise to Israel, the promise to ethnic Jews had failed. Um, that in uh, the purposes of God, it looked as though, as Paul is writing to the Romans, what has happened to God's promise to his ancient people? What has, what has happened to God's promise to Israel? And it looks, he's asking the question, has the promise to Israel, to ethnic Jews, failed? How can you rejoice, right, in God's triumph in redemption, the end of Romans 8, when the Jews remain hostile to the gospel. That's the issue that Paul raises in uh, Romans chapter 9. And there's a general resolution of this problem, and then there's a specific resolution of this problem in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The general uh, resolution is that the Word of God has not failed. God's purposes in election is being realized. So that as elect Gentiles and elect Jews are being saved, then the purposes of God, the promise of God, in, in a general sense, is, is, not, is not failing. A purpose that in fact has always discriminated between uh, children of Israel according to the flesh, and children of Israel according to the promise. That God is saving those children of Israel according to the promise. Throughout redemptive history, some were brought to salvation and others were hardened. So that's, that's the general point that Paul seems to be making. That all those whom God elects, whether they're Gentiles or Jews, will be saved. So the answer to the question, has, has God's promise 
been forgotten, in general, the answer is no. But then there's a specific resolution. Let's pick up Romans 11, 29, that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. The hardening of the Jews, not all of them, but in general terms, the hardening of the Jews has been an occasion for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. You see that in the Acts of the Apostles, that as Paul gets turned out of the synagogue, he, he takes the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul explains that in a lengthy section in Romans 11 by using the analogy of, of cutting off and ingrafting of olive trees, that the natural branches of the olive tree are cut off and other branches, Gentiles, are ingrafted into that same tree. The poverty of Israel has been the occasion of the riches of the Gentiles. And in turn, that leads to jealousy on the part of Israel and her fullness. All Israel will be saved. Uh, Romans eleven twenty six, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, what does, what does all Israel mean? And we're trying to deal with this in, in five or six minutes here. Um, and, and generally, there are, there are three differing views. There are probably many more, but there are three sort of general views as to what Paul means in Romans eleven twenty six that all Israel will be saved. Dispensationalists see this as part of God's program for Israel in the future millennium. So, Schofield Study Bible and so on would, would suggest. Um, classic, historic, premillennialists see it as a future conversion of the Jewish nation after Jesus returns. So, uh, there's a return of Jesus, there's a, there's a millennium that follows it, in, in which there is a conversion of the Jewish nation after Jesus returns. A classic uh, case of that would be George Eldon Ladd's um, Theology of the New Testament. A third view is the view that suggests that, that all Israel is a conversion of a large, um, a large number of Jews before Jesus returns. Now, all of these are viewing this statement, Romans eleven twenty six, that all Israel will be saved, as something that happens just prior to or immediately after the second coming. If you think Romans eleven twenty six is saying something specific about an event either before or after the second coming, it can, be, it, can be, uh, it can be the dispensational view, it can be the classic premillennial view, which is after the second coming, or that there have been those who have suggested that prior to Jesus' um, uh, second coming, there would be a conversion of a large number of Jews uh, in that last generation or two before Jesus comes, um, and the names you know are not uh, are not um, uh, insignificant here who held that view. 
uh, Hodge and John Murray and Voss and, and, and these days uh, Moo and uh, Venema and others. Um, uh, and sometimes, as we shall see later, that view is associated with um, a post-millennial understanding that Jesus comes after, post the millennium. And the millennium will include that when Jesus comes, the, the world, more or less, will have been converted. Not every single person, but, but there will be a large-scale turning of that final generation uh, before Jesus comes to Christ, including, including ethnic Jews. Now, others have said... All, and, that, and that view was certainly the view, the predominant view, perhaps, in kind of reformed circles um, up until fairly recently. That, that view held a significant amount of um, attention, that, that number C there, conversion of a large number of Jews. Um, more recently, this view, all Israel shall be saved, uh, is is brought back Israel in Romans 11:26 not Israel as ethnic Jew but Israel as you might say the church consisting of elect Jews and elect Gentiles so as elect Gentiles and elect Jews are saved the promise of God is fulfilled uh, the 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 gifts of God Uh, The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And through the stages, the the generations of the end times from Pentecost right up, not just necessarily at the time of Jesus' coming, but, but today and tomorrow and next week and the week after, there are going to be elect Gentiles and there are going to be elect Jews brought to Christ. And in that way, all Israel, Israel meaning church, Israel meaning elect Gentiles and elect Jews, all Israel will be saved. That would be John Calvin's um, view. So not seeing Israel there as a specific reference to ethnic Jews, but seeing it more in terms of the church, elect Gentiles and elect Jews. Um, And and a similar view um, by others, uh, the total number of elect Jews gathered throughout all of history, um, and again, some significant and especially Dutch names uh, in, in, in that view. Now, I'm not here tonight to persuade you one way or another as to what Romans 11:26 means, and I've held at least two, if not three views in the course of the last 35 years, and it and it sometimes does depend on who I've read last as to what I, what I really think Romans 11:26 means. Um, I, I think I'm settled uh, these days. But my, my point tonight is not to persuade you one way or another as to what Romans 11:26 means. But whichever view you take, it means that elect Gentiles and elect Jews are going to be saved as part of the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes, and it is a sign of the end times. Every time you hear of a conversion, and perhaps some of you are going to say, especially a Jewish conversion. 
It is a sign of the end times. End times that began at Pentecost. Not end times in the sense that the second coming is near, but that we are in the end times. This is what God has promised for the end times. So, those two things, the preaching of the gospel in all the world and the specific statement of Romans eleven twenty six, both of those are aspects of, of one general point that the end times are marked by signs of the triumph of the gospel, the triumph of the redemptive purposes of God. It's not, as I was saying last week, a sign that enables you to date the second coming. But it does tell you what the end times is about. What's, what's the program for the end times? The saving of God's elect, Gentiles and Jews. H- however that is going to be accomplished, and I imagine there are lots of different opinions about that, especially Romans eleven twenty six in this in this room. Um, A second group of signs, signs indicating opposition and judgment. Uh, Let's let's pick up some of this opposition and judgment. uh, Tribulation. So Matthew 24, and again, uh, we'll be looking at this in more detail when we look at the Olivet Discourse. See that no, no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Uh, you pick up the word tribulation there. Now, uh, when we come to look at the Olivet Discourse, we're, we're going to have to ask some more difficult questions as to whether Jesus is referring to the whole of the end times in this particular passage from 4 to 14 of Matthew 24, or is he referring to the period from Pentecost to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, that specific period? And, and, and uh, that, that issue is, is uh, raised by the observation um, of the disciples about the beauty and grandeur and majesty of the temple, and Jesus saying that not one stone will be left standing upon another, referring to A.D. 70. And then when they get over to Olivet, the disciples ask, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming? which actually is two questions, and they're two very different questions. And Jesus, I think, is answering both questions in Olivet. And, and the, the issue is, which question is he answering here? I think he's answering up to AD 70 here. The tribulation that he's speaking of here in this little section is the tribulation that led up to AD 70 and not the tribulation that is, in fact, a mark of the entirety of the end times. Well, what about the Great Tribulation? Uh, Before I say that, it is, of course, 
a mark of the, of the last days that Christians and the church in general will experience tribulation and opposition. One of the first lessons that Paul learned on his missionary journey when he comes back to Antioch, and he's about to set off on the second missionary journey, he tells the church in Antioch, through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. It's as though he's learned that lesson. He's underlining that lesson that tribulation, opposition, will, will always mark the church in the end times, in the last days. Now as much as tomorrow and as much as next year and so on. Uh, but what about the great tribulation? So we're picking up the next section of the Olivet Discourse. Uh, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, which might suggest that there's code language taking place here and that he may be referring to something that is, um, that is contemporary with the readers, perhaps something in the Roman Empire, and perhaps an, a, a particular emperor in particular, though Daniel was referring to um, Antiochus Epiphanes. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or, in the, or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. Well, again, right, the same question is, is being posed here. Lots of people read this passage, they see this word great tribulation, and, and, and then they conclude that one of the signs of the last times is that there will be a great tribulation prior to the second coming. That's somewhat in conflict with the idea, for example, of a large conversion of the, almost the entire world before Jesus comes, so the great tribulation is a bit of a problem. If, if you've got blessing, but now you've got great tribulation before the second coming, and we're going to have to sort that out. Is this section, and you notice this is Matthew 24, 15 through 22, is this section answering the question about the period up to AD 70, or is it answering the question as to what, what things will be like at the time of Jesus' second coming? And again, for my part, I think that the reference to the Great Tribulation here is a reference to A.D. 70. And, and at some point in this passage, Jesus flips from A.D. 70 to the, to the Second Coming. And, and where in the Olivet Discourse does he do that? And, and for my part, I, I don't think it's at verse 21, but, but that's next week. Um. So you've got tribulation, you've got the great tribulation, neither of which in these passages, I think, are references specifically to end time signs, although they have been suggested as such. But those apart, what about apostasy? Right, so let's move on in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 24. False Christ, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Is he talking simply about AD 70 or the entire period of, of between, the, between the first and second comings of Jesus? 
Let's go somewhere else. First Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter or later times, some will depart from the faith. Right? So, so there will be apostasy. 2 Timothy 3.1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion, some translations have the apostasy, comes first, and a man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, whatever, whatever you've made of tribulation, great tribulation, and so on. Now you've got a very specific reference to the appearance of a man of lawlessness. The apostasy or the rebellion comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Uh, Sometimes that's linked with the Antichrist. Uh, The problem with the Antichrist is that John is the only person who speaks about Antichrist, and he tends to speak about Antichrist in the plural, Antichrists, and he tends to speak of Antichrist as already existing at the time that he is writing, that, that, that Antichrist is already in, uh, is already in the world. First uh, John 2.18, children, it is the last hour, as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. John also says he has already come. So, so, now, so now many antichrists have come. From this we know that it is the last hour. Um, what, what do we make of this? Well, some would suggest that one of the signs of the last days, one of the signs of the times is the appearance of um, either an antichrist figure, uh, as John seems to be predicting in 1 John 2.18, or perhaps more specifically, um, a man of lawlessness, as Paul speaks of it in 2 Thessalonians. So let's, let's look at uh, bottom of page 7. Uh, that, that extensive quotation from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that as to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Right? There, were, there were obviously folk uh, in Paul's day who... Uh, were suggesting because of events that were taking place or perhaps for some other reason that the second coming of Jesus had already taken place, that the day of the Lord had already arrived, uh, perhaps in some, in some spiritual sense. Um, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first or, or the apostasy comes first and the lawless one, the man of lawlessness, 
is revealed the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? And you know what is now restraining him so that he may be revealed when his time comes. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed. So there's some kind of restraint, whether that's a general restraint or a personal restraint of some kind. That restraint is taken away and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And then, verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying, wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now, um, the question is, there are multiple questions here. Is, is the man of lawlessness um, a person? And, and the language here does certainly appear to be personal language. It's, it's, a, it's a he and a him uh, that Paul seems to be uh, speaking about, and not just something, something general, uh, not just evil in general, but there's some personal specificity to this man of lawlessness. Um, suggesting, perhaps, that prior to the second coming... Now, you can, you can move all of this, just as you do Matthew 24, you can move all of this, Second Thessalonians 2, to um, a prediction about something that's going to happen in A.D. 70. Uh, you can identify this, just for the sake of an argument, uh, you could identify the man of lawlessness as Nero. Uh, in the 60s. This is uh, Thessalonians. Thessalonians written in the 50s, right? So there's plenty of time here uh, for Paul to be predicting something that's, that's 10 years, 12 years down the line. That's removed all necessity of seeing an antichrist figure or a man of lawlessness figure in the future. And if you're post-millennial, you need to get rid of all those things. And you get rid of them by saying they happened at AD 70. Uh, the, the, we'll be coming back to issues of post-millennialism, amillennialism, pre-millennialism uh, later on in, in this uh, uh, course. Now, if you're not going to put the man of lawlessness um, or the Antichrist figure in AD 70, then the, 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 next sort of, the next sort of possibility is that the man of lawlessness that Paul is talking about here is, is a personal... Um, satanic figure that appears at the end of history and before Jesus comes, perhaps. Right? So that, if, if that's to be the interpretation, uh, the Westminster Confession, uh, for example, identified the Antichrist as the Pope uh, back in the 1640s, Right, but, but identifying it with, a, with, a, with an individual uh, and, and not just something general, um, then that, that certainly does um, add to the nature of the signs of uh, the end times. Uh, one more branch here of um, signs indicating divine judgment 
uh, and we'll, we'll look at wars and earthquakes and famines next week when we look at the Olivet Discourse. So I'm going to pass that part of it over, um, signs indicating divine judgment. But what about Armageddon? Uh, the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, reference Revelation 16, 16. They assembled them to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Uh, the so-called Battle of uh, Armageddon. Uh, dispensationalists again teach this will conclude the seven-year period between Jesus' coming for the saints and Jesus' coming with the saints. Right, so for the saints, rapture, church taken away for seven years. At the end of that seven years, there, there will be this, this um, uh, so-called battle of Armageddon. So see, see uh, uh, the Schofield Reference Bible uh, on that text. Uh, or is this yet another um, apocalyptic image, not necessarily something uh, that we are to view literally in Megiddo, uh, in the Israelan, uh, Israelan uh, valley. Uh, the reference here, of course, is to a site, a, the great plain of uh, Israelan uh, in Issachar, near the valley of Jezreel, uh, in Judges uh, 4 and 5, the battle um, that led to victory for, for God's people over King uh, Jabin, and his general Sisera through the leadership of Deborah and Barak. That seems to be the image that's being, that's being used in uh, Revelation 16. But in that, is this meant to be a literal battle? Right? Lots of books and movies and so on about Russia lining with Egypt or something and, and, the, and a great battle in literal, in the, in the valley of, uh, of Jezreel, a literal battle, or is this, as, as so much in the book of Revelation, is an apocalyptic cartoon-like depiction of the battle between good and evil, the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The battle against the great red dragon of Revelation chapter 12 and the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth and the false prophet uh, and, and, and all that is evil is finally um, conquered and the lamb uh, triumphs and the new Jerusalem is brought uh, into, uh, into being. Well, as so much in eschatology your big picture of your understanding often guides your interpretation of the little picture. So, so, so if, if, if you have a sort of large grid that this is how things are, for example, if, if, if your grid says there must be a period of extraordinary, extraordinary uh, blessing before Jesus comes. Um, all of these bad signs of apostasy and, and antichrist and so on, all of those have to be somehow taken away. And the way that is done by some is to push them all back into um, a, a, what's called a semi-preterist interpretation where these things are all taking place before A.D. 70. 
So we need more information, in other words. Uh, and we need to look in a little more detail uh, at particularly the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, um, and narrow our focus to that, that one uh, extraordinary chapter uh, uh, that Jesus uh, spoke to the disciples about on the Mount of Olivet. Um, and I think, I think our time is done. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word contains a great deal of information, uh, information that uh, we try to put together and try to match one part of Scripture with another part of Scripture so that we can discern what the pattern of life in the end times in which we now are is like, and uh, we, we pray, pray for um, better understanding, uh, but we are deeply conscious that the end is certainly coming, and that this world is not our home, and that you are preparing us for a new Jerusalem, and a new heavens, and a new earth, and teach us so to seek that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.